Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible nearby or someone else's and you're faster, grab it and open it up to the book of Exodus. If you're new to the Bible, the Exodus is this, actually the second book in the, in the Old Testament. So from the very beginning, it's the second book, Genesis and then Exodus. We're going to be this morning looking, as I get myself situated here, we're going to be looking together at Exodus chapter 3. There's a strange thing that we do as a part of a church. It's maybe not strange to most of us because it's what we do every week. But there's a strangeness to opening up an ancient book every week and asking what does it have to say to us in our modern context. And at the same time, the other thing that we're doing each week when we open this book is we're looking around at our lives and looking at the questions and, and thoughts and concerns and the lists that we're making in our heads for the next week even right now when we bring that to the Bible and we ask, what would God have to say to the midst of that? And I want to invite us to do that again this morning. As we begin to think about Exodus chapter 3, I want to start here. How do you make decisions? In your family growing up, in your family currently, if you are a part of a family immediately, how do you make decisions? I grew up in a home where my dad is a so, sort of a science engineering kind of person. And so we grew up hearing phrases like measure twice, cut once a lot. Um, we, we learned things like um, making pros and cons charts and looking at the pros and the cons of the decision that we needed to make or the, the options before us and choosing the one with the longer on the pro side than on the con side, depending on how it looked out. My sister and I, from a young age, learned how to make scale drawings of our bedrooms along with scale drawings of the pieces of furniture in our bedrooms because if we wanted to rearrange our rooms, it made much more sense to map everything out first and see what actually fit where. And then, and before we moved anything, because otherwise you're going to be in a world of grief, or so we thought. My dad, my, my wife and I are actually currently in the process of trying to figure out our, our car situation. I remember I was reminded recently of my dad telling me once that um, another one of his sort of maxims or whatever was, choose three, three things when you're spending a lot of money, like buying a car or a house, Try to find three of them that are of equal value, or so you think, and that you like equally well so that you can make the best decision among those three. How do you make decisions in that moment? We're not going to actually talk about decision-making this morning, but I want to start there as we look to Exodus 3, because in the moments of decision or of indecision, what do you wish would happen? I work with college students on a regular basis. It's, it's my, my day job, if you will. And they're always in, the, in this realm of having to make decisions. They've made decisions to get to K-State. They make decisions while they're here in terms of what their involvement in campus is going to look like. And they're in the process seemingly, seemingly all the time about making decisions about the next summer or the next semester or what happens after we graduate. Decisions are all around us. And in those moments, and whatever decision-making processes you're in now, you, you know the desire for certainty, right? We want certainty. We want an audible voice from God. We want the writing in the stars to tell us what to do. How many times have you said about some major decision in your life, I wish someone would just tell me what to do so that I would know what to do. We want to be able to look into the future. As I said, we're not going to talk about decision making this morning. But I want you to feel the reality of being in the place of uncertainty and asking yourself, what do you want in that moment? When you're facing the future, when you're facing the unknown, whether it's specifically your unknown or the unknown of your children or your grandchildren, the unknowns of work, the unknowns of relationship, the unknowns of vocation down the road, 
that knows of where you should live or where the army is going to take you. What do you want in that moment? With that in mind, I want to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 15 verses of the chapter, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to talk about what it means, what it, what it says, what it means, and how we can respond to it. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of, the, of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take, off your, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am, the, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of their, their, that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that he may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When, you. when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am who sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The grass withers, the flowers fade. Let's pray as we consider these words together. Father in heaven. You made yourself known. You make yourself known. And yet, we are often slow to understand, slow to believe. Father, we would much rather cling to what is right in front of us than to trust old words. And yet, that is exactly where you call us to live and to be. We pray this morning that you would send out your light and your truth, that they would take us to the place where you are that we might hear you afresh this morning through your word. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. The chapter begins in verse 1. We meet Moses, a man living in hiding. You see, if you're not familiar with the first two chapters of Exodus, it's the story, the book of Exodus in general is the story of God's people being enslaved in Egypt and the deliverance of God of those people to take them out of Egypt. Now we meet Moses. Moses was an Israelite man who was born to Israelite parents, 
But quickly after his birth, he ended up being adopted, so to speak, by Egyptian royalty and he was raised as a part of the king's family. As an adult, though, walking among the people that were his people, the Israelites, he killed a man who was abusing one of his fellow men, and he thought it was done in secret. He thought it was okay. The next day, he found out that it wasn't a secret, that it was known, and he had to flee. He ran for his life because the king, he found out, wanted to kill him. He had to flee the king's wrath when, he, when it was discovered what he had done. And so we meet him in the wilderness with sheep. You see, when he fled, he met a, a woman named Zipporah and her sisters and their father, Jethro, whose name was also Reuel, as, as it's described in chapter 2. And Circumstances happen, and Moses ends up marrying Zipporah, and they begin to have a family together. And Moses works for his father-in-law. We, but we know by the end of chapter 2 that the king that was out to get Moses had died, and another king was in, was in place, and yet Moses continued to live in the wilderness, away from his people, away from the land of Egypt. As I said, the people of Israel, Moses' people, were enslaved at this point. They had grown, you see, they had initially, the family had initially fled to Egypt because of famine that was in the land of Canaan where they were living. And so by God's miraculous provision, he sent them to Egypt to live and to grow and to thrive. And that's exactly what they did. But what that meant for the people of Israel, or for the people of Egypt, that is, is they began to get nervous that these sojourners were growing and multiplying and getting stronger and stronger. And trying to be politically and diplomatically wise, they said, we must subject them to slavery. We must control them so that our enemies do not take advantage of this as a weakness. And so the Egyptians subjected them to slavery and were tyrannical towards them, even to the point of killing their male children to keep them from growing stronger and from being a threat. They cried out to God, the scriptures tell us, and the cries went up to the heavens where God is, and God heard them, and God saw the oppression that they faced and the, the abuse of their slavery, and God knew their pain and suffering, and so God would not let them be there, and he would not let Moses stay hidden either. God calls out to Moses for a task greater than him. It's what we just read, that God calls to Moses and says, I have a plan for your life, Moses. This is what I'm going to do with you. What would you want in that moment if you were in Moses' shoes? If God was calling you to something far greater than you even could begin to understand that scared you, that made you feel inadequate, you may even feel that already this morning. What do you want in those moments? I want to walk through the passage and see where, how God meets Moses and what God gives to Moses as the, as the passage progresses. The, the first thing that God gives Moses is that God appears to him. God says, Moses, here I am. The way that he does it is, as Moses is leading the sheep, he goes to a pasture land that he assumes would be good and plentiful for the sheep as he's working for his father-in-law. And off in the distance, he sees something. Now understand, on a mountain like this, in a desert kind of region, if the air is dry, it would not be uncommon to see a bush or a tree or something on fire. That would not actually have been an uncommon sight. And yet what Moses realized very quickly was, this is on fire, but it's not really on fire. I see flames, but I don't see ash. The bush is not getting any smaller. By the end of verses 2 and 3, he says, something is different here, I need to go look. And what he discovers, and what the narrator tells us, is that this is something miraculous. God appears to Moses 
in the miraculous. You see, the text explains that the angel of the Lord is present. But then as it goes on in, in verses, beginning in verse 4, we hear that this, this speaks. And what it tells us in verse 4 is that the voice that is heard is not the angel's voice, it is God's voice. The miraculous is the presence of God in this moment. Because it is, it is God speaking through this event. It is the unexplainable. It is what catches Moses' attention and what catches our attention and causes us to wonder, what, what's happening here, he says. And so he moves over. Now, understand, God is present everywhere all the time. The beginning chapters of the book of Genesis tell us that his spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, that he has always been present. But what's happening in this moment is, is outside of what our, our confession calls the ordinary providence of life. You see, God is always at work sustaining everything, but in this moment he's doing something that seems to go against what makes sense. And what we can explain. Throughout the passage, it's fascinating to notice the number of times that we see the word see or appear. There's a very visual sense to what he's describing as this passage unfolds. And yet Moses doesn't describe actually seeing the deity, seeing God. But he sees this bush on fire and out of that he hears the voice and he hears the speaking. I wonder what the unexplainable in your life is. I know enough of some of your stories to know what that looks like. Take a second and just look around you and think about the people that you now count as friends. Can you explain where they came from and how it is that your lives intersected in a way that you could have planned? For some of you, it's your spouse that you look at and think, there's no way on earth apart from God's grace that I would be with this person, that I met this person, that our paths even crossed. Some of you are from different countries from your spouse. Different states, for sure. Or, or you look at your children and you think, could I have planned that this would be my child? That this is what my, how my child would behave or not behave? That this is what they would be into or not into? We look at the circumstances of our lives. You live in Kansas, most of you probably now, which may not have been on your agenda or your plans. We look around at all of our lives and we think, I can't explain every detail of my life. I can't explain it all. And yet, we believe that God has ordered our lives in that way, and God is present there. But notice what happens as the scene continues. God begins to speak in verse 4, and it says, When the Lord saw that, he, that Moses turned to see, God called out to him. He said, Moses, Moses, and Moses says, Here I am. Moses says, I'm ready. What do you need from me? As he hears the voice. And then God, and God says in verse 5, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, I'll admit to you, I'm not fully sure of the, the, the derivation of the custom for taking your shoes off. But I know from reading and I know from studying from even other places in Scripture, what we see is that this is a, this is a, an, an, a not weird custom for, for people in religious settings, even outside of the Bible to take their feet off as a show of reverence. It may have something to do with the fact that for, for Moses, the, the, the sandals represented the work that he was doing because as he shepherded the sheep, he needed something to protect his feet from the rocks and the dirt. And it may be, it may be something connected with that. We're, we're honestly not fully sure. But what God says to him is, Moses, I am here and I am holy. 
which means I am something greater than what you could even begin to comprehend, and more true and more perfect and pure than what you could understand. And I expect you to respond accordingly. And Moses takes his sandals off his feet. And then in fact, in verse 6, we read that Moses even hides his face. And we don't get the sense that it's because out of shame or guilt, it's because he, can't, he realizes he cannot look at God. And what he sees is too much for him to understand and comprehend. This is the holiness of God. Moses is overwhelmed and God appears. Do you see the appearing of God in your life? Now, from everything we can understand is you shouldn't expect in your life to see a burning bush not consumed by fire on your way home today. This is a unique experience in the life of God's people. It's, a, it's, a, it's an historical event that happened that is, from what we can tell in Scripture, is not intended to be repeatable. So I'm not saying go look for that or something that sounds like that that you can make sound like that and make work for you, like this is my burning bush. What I would invite you to do, though, is to look at the circumstances and details of your lives, the things that you can't explain, and it may be your marriage, it may be your children, it may be your job, it may be where you live, it may be some other circumstance, and simply ask yourself, is this not God present ruling over my life in ways that I, that I am not in charge of my life? Can we look at that and see the unexplainable and see that as a hint towards God? And, and for some of you, you may be even in a place this morning where you're not sure about the existence of God. And so I invite you especially to ask yourself, can you give full explanation for every detail of your life? Can you give a full accounting? I'm banking on the fact that you cannot case you're wondering. But ask yourself, what is behind what's happening in my life? Is there something greater? And at the same time, I want us to call us to see God as he presents himself to Moses, as the one who is holy, the one who says, take your shoes off when I am present, because something unique is happening here. God is not your buddy. God is not your pal. God is not your chum. God is the creator of the universe. And he appears and he is present and he is at work. And yet he is not just a little bit better version of you. He's not the high school version of you versus the version of now or vice versa depending on how you see your life. He is something far greater. Do you see God's holiness in your life? What's fascinating though is in moments as we talked about, in moments of indecision, we want God to appear. We want the writing in the sky. Moses gets the miracle, but God doesn't stop there. God began speaking in verses 4 through 6, but notice as we continue in the passage how we hear God speak even more clearly and, with, and more directly. Notice what he says beginning in verse 7. God says to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. God is speaking to Moses with compassion. He says, I have surely seen, I have heard, I know. The creator of the universe is not aloof. He is not busy watching a Netflix series and is distracted from you. He's not busy with his nose in a book. He's not busy with a war on the other side of the country, so he doesn't have time for you. He speaks to Moses and he says, I have seen, I have heard, and I know. This is the compassion of God. That the creator of the universe would say, I'm aware of your suffering. 
It is not a mystery to me. It is not outside of my realm. In fact, several times throughout this passage, we hear him speak of my people Israel, or my children, or the children of Israel. This is terms of endearment for God, for his people, to express his love, his care, and his concern. This indeed is his compassion. He knows where they are. He knows where you are. And he is indeed at work. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Minority Report, but it's one of those sort of strange science fiction futuristic movies that, to give us, to help us think about what the future might be like. And one of the very side elements in that movie is that one of the main characters runs into a, to a gap in the mall at one point during the, the, the movie. And the, the gap is, has a retinal scan in it. So he walks in and it reads his eyeball, right? And it, tells, it figures out who he is. And it begins to announce to him, the jeans you bought last time are on sale now in aisle such and such. You can pick them out in these colors. We have them in stock. It's kind of creepy to think that the store would know exactly what he bought last time. And I'll tell you that I often go into coffee shops and wonder if they have retinal scans because the music playing seems to be music that I like regularly. I'm pretty sure they don't, but I'm still holding out judgment for sure. But it's that thought that the store could respond automatically to your needs and to what you, what you want and to your habits of purchasing. It's probably not that far off, let's be honest with ourselves, knowing what computers can do. And yet what we see God doing is not this automated kind of mechanistic process of, okay, the light's going off that my people are in trouble. Okay, I have to respond to them now. I'll get up off my couch and go take care of them. What God tells us over and over again is that I see, I hear, and I know. I am well aware because I love my people and I'm responding out of compassion for them. And I'm going to take them out of this place of slavery to this place where there is more than enough room for them, where there's more than enough milk and honey flowing for them, for their crops and for their bellies and for their animals. There is more than enough that I have for them. This is God speaking out of compassion for his people. But then look at verse 10. It's not only compassion that he speaks with, he also speaks with great clarity. And this is what makes Moses nervous. He says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You see, God has a plan for Moses. And God has already said very clearly that he will be the one to deliver, right? And yet the clarity that comes is he's saying to Moses, Moses, I'm going to use you to do this. You will literally go to Pharaoh to lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses' response is very honest. Moses asks, who am I? Moses knows his own story. He knows that he's in hiding because his life was threatened. He had to flee from Egypt once already. He's but a man guiding sheep in the wilderness. And the beautiful thing that happens next is that Moses is not the answer to his own question. Look at verse 12. What does God say? God says, I will be with you. Moses says, who am I? And God says, you're not hearing me. I will be with you. And then God gives him a sign. And the sign is, he says, along the way to, out of Egypt to the land that I promised you, you will come back to this mountain and worship me with, me, with the people. That, that by that you will know that I have told you to do this and that I'm giving you the ability to do this. The clarity that God gives to Moses is to say, I will be with you, Moses, and this indeed will happen. Beloved, by grace, I want you to hear the compassion of God for you this morning. 
The psalmist writes in Psalm 56, speaking to God, You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Tears shed for loved ones. Tears shed for children, for grandchildren. Prayers prayed. And I'm not talking once or twice. I know over decades for some of you. God hears you. Because He is God. God is aware. He has not left you in the dark. He has not left you alone. He is with you. The compassion of God is for His people. And it's not because we're beautiful or smart or wealthy or powerful or influential. It is because we are His. And the promise goes forth that He has not forgotten you. And I don't want to brush over anything because I know, I know that there, that there are times when it feels like he has left us alone and he has forgotten us. And that he is not paying attention, that he is asleep. And know that the scriptures know that too. Because we hear the psalmist proud, awake, O sleeper, arouse yourself. The Bible is not unfamiliar with the feeling that God has been silent. And yet what it tells us over and over again is that he is not silent. That he is speaking with compassion. The other side of this is to encourage us all to rest in the clarity with which God speaks as he speaks. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord your God, but the things that are revealed belong to us, that we may do all the works of this law. The point is this. When God speaks clearly, take him at his word. And let's learn not to fret when it's not always clear. That's why we live in community together. And so when, when you hear us say, your sins are forgiven on Sunday mornings, as we, you heard already this morning, take God at His word that you indeed are forgiven and that there's nothing you can do to accomplish that forgiveness. When He says, you shall worship no other gods before me, let's take Him at His word that He means what He says and that He is clear about that. Again, I'm not saying there is not complexity in the decisions that we need to make in the way that we live our lives. There most undoubtedly is complexity every day of our lives. And yet that does not mean that God has not spoken, for He has, and He continues to speak through His Word. Let us hear His compassion and hear His clarity. So we've got the miracle and we have the voice. Right? That's what we want, right? We want God to speak. We want him to show us a sign to know what, is, what, we, what we need to do with our lives. And yet he doesn't stop there because he knows that Moses needs more. Moses has another question for God. It's reasonable to think that as God's people have now lived for generations in the land of Egypt, gotten used to new ways of life, seeing the ways that other people live, that on some level they would have forgotten their creator in, in some way, shape, or form. They have cried out to him, but yet there's a distant memory that is there. And so beginning in verse 13, Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God's response, I am who I am. And then he shortens it to say, I am. And then he shortens it again to say, the Lord. You see, what's happening here, God is giving Moses his name. Forgive what may seem a little shallow, but I want to illustrate it this way. There's a, there's a video 
um, from a, some, some organization's Teen Choice Awards where the actor Ashton Kutcher receives some sort, of, some sort of award that he calls the Old Man Award. And if you know who Ashton Kutcher is, he's a movie star. He was on that 70s show. That's kind of how he got his fame. And he starts his speech by saying this. He says, I'm a fraud because my name isn't really Ashton. My name is Chris. As he his first name, he goes by his middle name. He said he started when he was 19, his, his acting career started taking off. He changed, he started going by his middle name because presumably it sounded better to go by Ashton than it went to go by Chris. But in that moment, what you hear him saying is, I want you to know something about me. Now, he's still the movie star. I've never met the man. We're not good friends. We're not, you know, we're not on social media together, whatever. But he's saying to this audience of screaming fans, I want you to know something about who I am. And he begins to tell stories about the first jobs that he had. And it's this amazing moment of hearing him say, I just want, to, I want you to know who I am. Besides the glitz and the glamour, he said, I've worked hard every day of my life. And he begins to talk about his first job and his second job and his third job. Think about meeting somebody like The Rock and him saying to you, call me Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson. Or think about um, Stephanie Joanne, I had to look this one up, Stephanie Joanne uh, Angelina Germanata, known as Lady Gaga now. Think about the difference when you hear the professional name versus their full name. They become real people to us, don't they? The old, the old school one is Bono's real name is Paul Hewson. He's gone by Bono so long that most of us don't, don't even remember what his real name is. But imagine these people saying, call me Stephanie, call me Dwayne, call me Chris, call me Paul. They become real people that step into the real world in which we live. Something along those lines is what God is doing here. He's not making a philosophical argument first. He's not making a deep theological, taking a deep theological position, though he will do that through this. What he's saying is, this is my name, and this is who my people know me as. Now there's a little bit of a play on words as this unfolds. You see, if you look back at verse 12, when he says, I will be, that's the same word that shows up when he says, I am who I am. That shows up again at the end of verse 14 when he says, I am. And then a different version of it when he says in verse 15, the Lord. And so what your Bibles probably do is when you read the Lord, and it's in all caps, or as if you're used to a word processor, small caps, where you have the capital L, lowercase, lower capital O, capital R, capital D. It's referencing this point in the Bible of God saying, this is my name. This is my name. This is who I am. We, we talk about this as God's covenant name. It's God revealing his character, his very identity to Moses and saying, I want you to know who I am. And I am who I am. But then notice what he does in verse 15. He's already hinted at this in verse 6. But if you look at verse 15, God said, also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, there's that name, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. It's God's covenant name. It's God's covenant faithfulness. That word covenant shows up a lot around here. The word covenant means that God has bound himself to who he is and to his people. To be faithful to them, to do as he says he will do for all generations. That's what he's declaring here in the, in the further explanation. His name, who he is, and his faithfulness. To say, this is who I am. God is simply saying, here I am. I am who I am. 
Now, we could throw words around like his unchangeableness, which fits. His eternity, which fits. He has no beginning and no end. There is no change to who he is. We can use more complicated words like his aseity, which I think basically means his unchangeableness. That he is not dependent upon any creature for who he is or for his existence. That he is self-existing from all eternity and through all eternity. We can use all those words, but fundamentally what God is doing is he's saying... I am who I am, and I am the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, as one theologian writes. He is committing himself to his people. Beloved, no, this is God's name for us as well, if we believe. Because God is saying, you are my people, and I want you to know that this is who I am, and that I will continue to be who I am. This will not change, this will not go away. Now, what's beautiful about the way that this unfolds is Moses is, is called to a task. And, and if you keep reading in chapter 3 and chapter 4, you, you, and if you don't know the story, he's going to have some more objections to his being called to this. He's still overwhelmed with his task. He gets the miracle. It's not enough. He gets the words. It's not quite enough. And God says, I am who I am. God says, I am here with you, Moses, and I will not leave you. And that is the promise to us. In the moment of indecision, in the moment of fear, in the moment of uncertainty, God may not give you the writing that you, on the wall that you want. And he may not give you the miracle as clearly as you would like. And yet he says, I am who I am and I will not change. And I will be with you. One of my favorite podcast stories that I listened to again yesterday a few times is the story of Brit Tem Fitzhaim who had this grand vision that he would row a bathtub across the English Channel. Because that's who this guy is. He was taking a bath one night and he said he began to wonder. Literally a bathtub. And so he had this third ton bronze bathtub made for him from one of the strongest bathtub companies in England apparently. And he begins to row across the English Channel. And now he'd done preparation. He actually had his, his bathtub registered as, as a British ship for legal reasons, and it, and it helped him out. But what he realized in this process was the English Channel is one of the busiest shipping lanes in all of the world. And when we're talking about shipping lanes, we're talking about tankers that he discovered that take 15 miles to come to a complete stop. 15 miles, that's how big they are and how big the inertia is of them moving, that it takes them 15 miles to stop. And so he finds himself rowing across the English Channel in a bathtub. And he sees the tanker. And he thinks, I've got to row harder. I've got to row harder. And he, and he says when he started this venture, he knew nothing about the sea. He knew nothing about rowing. He knew, knew very little about any of this, but he learned as he went. And he saw this. And he said, I've got to keep rowing. Now, you, you know the reality. If, if, you can, if you can picture that in your minds... You're in a bathtub rowing across the English Channel. No amount of rowing is going to get you out of the way of the tanker that it takes 15 miles to stop, or all the other ships for that matter. But you know what he did? Because he had registered his bathtub with the, with the, with the royal, with the, with, as a royal ship, because he had contacted the Queen, which he did, and because he had contacted the Royal Navy to let them know about his plans, and everybody was on board with this, he simply had to make a phone call to say, because he, he knew that actually as the, as the smaller ship in the process, in the, in, the, in the lanes, he actually had the right of way. 
the biggest ship had to let, 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 give the right of way to the smaller ship to the smaller ship, and he's in a bathtub. And so he calls the tanker on his radio, and he says, I'm in the bathtub, I'm in the bathtub. And they get out of the way. I love that story. It's a fascinating listen. But what I want you to know is I know that it may feel like life, like you're in the bathtub and here comes the ship. And your thought process is, I gotta keep rowing, I gotta keep rowing, I gotta keep rowing. And quickly at some point you realize no amount of rowing is gonna get you out of the way of that ship. God says to you, I'm with you. And I will not be not with you because I am who I am. God is pledging his faithfulness to you he calls us to look at the circumstances of our lives, to see the unexplainable and to know that he's behind it. To hear his voice, to look for his holiness, to hear his compassion, to hear his clarity, to hear him say, I am who I am to you, believer, in 2019 in Manhattan, Kansas. To know that he is for you and not against you. One writer describes this revelation of God this way. He says, this name means the God of the fathers, the unchangeable one, the faithful one, the eternally self-consistent one who never leaves nor forsakes his people, but always again seeks out and saves his own. He is unchangeable in his grace and his love and his assistance who will be what he is because he is always himself. You know that when Jesus walked along the earth... The book of John records this. He began to say these, what we call the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But in chapter 8 of the book of John, he's speaking to those who are questioning this. And Jesus simply says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You see, all of this holds true for us as God's people as we worship in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus said, I am. The one who walked along the earth, who was born, who grew up, who suffered, who died, and who rose again from the dead, identifies himself unquestioningly with the I am of the Old Testament to say, I am the Lord. I am God. I am the Son of God. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, these words are true for us. This is our confidence, beloved. God says, I will be with you and I will not forsake you. Let's pray. Father, by your grace and by your mercy, Father, you are at work orchestrating our lives in ways that we can't even understand fully. And Father, by your grace and by your mercy, you speak again and again and again. And you continue to speak through your word, even as you spoke finally in the person of Jesus. Father, I pray for us that your word, that you would apply your word to our hearts deeply by your spirit. That its truth would shape how we think, would shape what we love, and would shape how we live. In the name of that one, Jesus, we pray. Amen.